Hi, everybody. Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all the Just the News podcasts. You can go to justthenews.com and see the list of them on the homepage. Today, a mass exodus from America's public schools is underway. We'll have some new statistics and talk about what this possibly historic shift could mean for the future of American education. What if I were to tell you that in Denver, Colorado, so many kids are leaving the public school system, which means money leaving the public school system because the schools get money per students, that they're forecasting in Denver having to close down schools over the next few years. That's just one example of a major shift going on in this country. There's an exodus from public schools to the tune of about 2 million students that we know of so far, according to the Census Bureau, since the pandemic began and closings. More parents are homeschooling, moving their kids to charter schools, private schools, religious schools. And there are a lot of reasons, not just the COVID shutdowns, but what parents learned about the school systems and what they learned about themselves while their kids were home. Whether this whole trend will hurt American education and public schools or ultimately force reforms that save them is a matter of great debate. Today, I'm going to speak to one man with a lot of data and stats, recent updated data and stats. He's a school choice advocate. Corey DeAngelis is the National Director of Research at the American Federation for Children. And I began by asking him first about his own experience in public school. So I actually attended public schools all through K through 12. But for high school, I had the opportunity to attend something called a magnet school, a school that is still run by the government, still a public school by definition, but you're not residentially assigned to a magnet school. And so they have a strong incentive to cater to the needs of families and to uh, attract customers. And my four years there, I had a, a great experience, and I feel like that had a positive impact on my life trajectory. So I've, I would like to push for other families to have similar options, whether it's another public school or a charter school or a private school or a homeschooling option like a micro school or even a pandemic pod that we've heard so much about over the past couple of years where families band together in a household and essentially economize on the process of homeschooling. And so my basic idea is that the, the funding should follow the child to wherever they're getting an education. If it's the public school and that works best for them, Absolutely, they should be able to have that opportunity to stay there. But if not, they should be able to take their education dollars to a private charter home or another type of option. And that's school choice, more or less? That's what most people would, would define as school choice. But since that's so, such a murky term, what do people mean like that? I like to reframe the conversation to talk about it in terms of funding students as opposed to systems. Just like we do with higher education, we have the Pell Grant, for example, for low-income students and the GI Bill for veterans. The money doesn't go straight to the community college regardless of whether you want to go there. The money goes to the student, and they rightfully have a choice. They could take the money to the community college that they want to pay for tuition, but they could also take the money to a public university or a private religious or non-religious university. 
Same thing with pre-K programs. Think about the federal Head Start program. The money doesn't go straight to a residentially assigned government-run provider of pre-K. Instead, the money goes to the family, and they can choose public, private, religious, or non-religious providers of pre-K services. I'm just arguing we should apply the same logic to K-12 education, those in-between years, and fund people, not buildings. What would you say is the state of public education today in the United States? There's some good public schools and there's some bad public schools. If you look at the nation's report card overall, um, however, that we have a 15% proficiency rate in U.S. history, for example, according to the 2019 National Assessment of Educational Progress. We have similarly low proficiency levels in math and reading. I believe there are about 25 to 33% uh, proficiency rates. And uh, as well, there's, there's the, the, the problem with the current system um, isn't so much about test scores, but it's about values uh, of the parent being aligned with the school. Or even, you know, you can have an A-rated public school that might not just be the right fit for, for your child. And they may learn better in another environment, whether that's at a smaller school or a school that they're just, there's a specialty that they're interested in. In my high school, for example, the magnet school was called Communications Arts. And so in, in my district in San Antonio, Texas growing up, we had a few different options. You could go to a health careers type of school, a communications school, a business career school, even a construction career school. Or you could go to the school that you're residentially assigned to as well, and that was another option as well. Um, and so families might just need to have their kid in, in a school that's either where the kid learns better or that it's a curriculum that aligns with their values. I don't know if you've looked over the span of decades, but if you have, if you haven't, fine. But if you have, what is what are the trends when it comes to public education over the decades? Was there a time when parents seemed more satisfied overall with public education or just hadn't thought about other options? Or did it used to be that private schools were more popular? Yes, I'll say that the satisfaction levels and the proficiency levels have been pretty stagnant over time. The the thing is, though, we've poured more and more resources into the current system. For example, nationwide, we now spend about $15,000 or $16,000 per student per year, according to the U.S. Census Bureau's 2019 reporting on this information. It's probably a lot higher now because of the three federal quote-unquote COVID relief bills that have been about three to $4,000 since April of 2020. So we've poured tons of money into the system, and the amount per student has increased 287% after adjusting for inflation since 1960. And the outcomes have remained stagnant. And I think the reason for that is because the current in the current system, families don't have a lot of options to create competition for the system to do a better job. So these geographic monopolies have very little incentive to cater to, to cater to the needs of families and to put resources into the classroom. And in fact, if you look at trends for teacher salaries, those have been stagnant, stagnant over time as well. Between 1992 and 2014, if you look at Ben Scafidi's reporting on this, he's a professor of economics at Kennesaw State University. He found that over this time period nationwide, we increased per pupil education expenditures by 27% after adjusting for inflation. But teacher salaries actually dropped in real terms by 2%. And that's because their employer, this monopoly, doesn't have strong incentives to put the money into the classroom. And instead, they put it towards administrative bloat and staffing surges, which is great for teachers union bosses because that means more dues-paying members. But it's not so good for the individual teachers. And it's not so great for families either if they're not getting what they want. 
What are the trends when it comes to the movement of students from public school to either homeschooling or some other option of private school? Yeah, so in the past year year or so, um, since March of 2020 when the schools closed, I think there's been a great awakening with parents uh, pushing back against the status quo and even voting with their feet because they found that they're not happy with the traditional school for whatever reason. Maybe they didn't like the remote instruction, which, to be clear, we shouldn't call remote learning because there was a lot of harm done to kids when the schools closed. We should call it remotely learning or, to be more accurate, school closures or remote instruction at least. and when what, that form of um, kind of government schooling at home, for whatever reason, didn't work for a lot of families. So they voted with their feet to other types of sectors, either private schools, charter schools, or even just formally homeschooling. The U.S. Census Bureau, for example, put out the, um, the American Pulse survey, nationwide survey, finding that relative to pre-pandemic levels, homeschooling has at least doubled. That's and so huge. that's a huge yeah. surge in homeschooling. Because homeschooling was already on an uptick prior to that. Yep. Pre-pandemic levels of homeschooling were only about 3%. Um, some sources were a little under 3%. But on average, homeschooling pre-pandemic levels formally, not schooling at home, not being enrolled in a public school and then doing some stuff at home, but formally homeschooling, meaning not having your kid enrolled in a public or private school, that number is about 3%. Now it's about... Uh, 6% or higher, according many, to the U.S. Census. Sorry. How many kids does that represent? Are we talking about tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands? Yeah, so it's about uh, a couple million students uh, nationwide, formerly homeschooling, pre-pandemic levels, so closer to 4 million students, for example, now. Can you tell me what the trends were, if you know? Can you tell me what the trends were moving out of public schools if that wasn't going in that <clears throat> direction prior to COVID, and what happened with COVID? I don't remember the overall trends, and I don't think there was a mass exodus from public schools in recent years. If anything, enrollments were ticking up year by year nationwide in the public school system. But since pre-pandemic levels, there's been a mass exodus from the traditional public school system. And the latest data that I've seen is published by the National Alliance of Public Charter Schools. They had state-level data for 42 different states and the District of Columbia. And they found that nationwide, 1.5 million students had left the traditional public schools or the district-run schools. That that was about a 3.3% reduction in enrollment in the traditional public school sector. But public charter schools saw an uptick of about 7.1% in their enrollment. So families are already voting with their feet to different sectors. It could have, all, it could have been because charter schools had already been doing virtual learning, for example, for a, for a very long time. So they already had systems in place uh, to do a good job with the schooling at home, whereas the traditional sector, they had to come up with some stuff on the fly and they may have not been able to respond in time. But then other families started to vote with their feet to private schools because they wanted in-person instruction. And um, if I hadn't said this already, the public schools lost about 1.5 million students. And a, a, Is that a, in 2021? or This was the 2020-2021 um, school year relative to the previous year about a 3.3% drop in enrollment. I mean, is there some anticipation that that will come back? In other words, do we have any sense whether these are permanent defectors or semi-permanent, or as the COVID restrictions ease, will these people come back to public school? 
there's really no telling at this point. But for a long time, we already we thought that people would have already started returning to the schools. And look, the schools have been open in a lot of places. In most places, um, in-person instruction has resumed, but people haven't sent their kids back to the traditional school system. We're still seeing these persistent reductions in enrollment. And even this school year coming up, 2021-2022, we've seen additional drops in enrollment relative to the previous year. So it doesn't look like it's getting... Uh, much better, if at all, for the public school system. And that could be for a couple of reasons, right? It could be that some parents perhaps are still hesitant about in-person instruction for whatever reason with um, the COVID mitigation strategies in the school. Maybe there are some parents that do think it's more safe in at home. Other parents maybe have found this new confidence in their ability to homeschool their kids, in, for all the bad things that happened starting in 2020, one of the unintended benefits is that some people got a taste of home-based education, and people who thought that they didn't have the ability to do it or they just didn't um, understand what it would take to, to get the job done, they've started to figure out that, well, maybe this works better for my kids. So there have, there's some of that. And there's some families that have switched into a charter school or a private school that saw a difference and want to continue keeping their kids in those schools. When we're looking at COVID, there are school systems that did not shut down. There are school systems that opened up prior to the vaccine being released. Mm -hmm. Is there data that shows whether they suffered more illnesses than the schools that did a lot of very strict measures or stayed closed? So I will say there are at least five studies now that I've seen. A couple of them are peer-reviewed, including one of my own with Christos McCready's, finding that places with stronger teachers' unions were a lot more likely to close their schools in the fall of 2020. And so if you think about it like like this way, for example, California schools were closed a lot longer than, than schools in Texas or Florida, even though California spends more per student than Texas and Florida. And the the main reason for that is because California has much more influential employee unions who push to keep the schools closed. And I don't think it's because the people in the system have bad intentions at all. I don't think that's the reason for this. But all across the country, we saw that the private schools were fighting to remain open as long as possible. And I think and, and the public school sector teachers unions in some places were fighting to remain closed, even in places like Florida, where they kept the schools open for a pretty long time, and they didn't close all that long. Um, But that was despite the best efforts of the Florida Education Association. They actually filed a lawsuit against Governor DeSantis to try to keep the schools closed. What was interesting there was that I think the difference, the main difference, is not one of intentions but one of incentives, that one of these sectors gets your money regardless of whether they open their doors for business. The private schools understood that families could vote with their feet and take their money elsewhere. That's just the reality of it. The public schools knew that they could keep their jobs and, and their security and their pay and their paycheck while working from home. And they also understood, though, it was even worse than that, because they understood that they could work from home, not provide the in-person child care services, and use that as leverage to lobby for more taxpayer resources. It's essentially a form of hostage-taking to, to secure multi-billion dollar ransom payments from the federal government. And in fact, it kind of worked. In 20, Since April, March of 2020, the federal government has already allocated $190 billion in uh, COVID relief to schools in, in just looking at K-12 education. And so it kind of worked um, using that as leverage to, to get more money from the taxpayer. 
And as far as the safety of, of school reopenings, the preponderance of the evidence suggests that schools should be the first things to open and the last things to close. And we don't have significant evidence to suggest that school closures makes anybody safer. It's interesting. Um, even all the data aside, just think about it. The grocery store stayed open the entire time. Those workers were able to return to work and, and be fine. The private schools were essentially open the entire time, or at least, at least fighting to reopen. There's actually a Catholic school in Sacramento County in California where there was an absurd closure rule that applied to schools but not daycares. And, and the private school out there actually rebranded itself as a daycare uh, by retraining all of its employees as child care providers in order to get around that ridiculous regulation because, again, they knew that families weren't going to be willing to pay the tuition payments if they weren't getting the full services. But you don't have that same kind of uh, bottom-up accountability and incentive structure built into the traditional public school system. And I don't think that's a – again, I don't, I don't blame the employees in the system. I blame the system itself for not allowing the, the funding to follow the child to provide true bottom-up accountability. Back after a short break. Tasks, deadlines, and projects. What if your teams had a tool that brought everything together? Trello is the project management tool that powers collaboration for over 2 million teams across the globe, including 80% of Fortune 500s. Trello brings teams together by tracking daily to-dos and provides a high-level view across projects and teams. From product development and design to support and production, Trello helps all teams move their work forward together. Thousands of IT admins around the world trust Trello to keep their work safe. With Trello, your teams will have access to hundreds of top-tier integrations they can rely on. A big reason why Trello is top-rated for employee satisfaction. It's where companies do their best work. Trello for enterprise. Learn more by visiting trello.com slash for enterprise. That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com slash for enterprise. To elaborate on the notion of were the schools that shut down, did the kids and the teachers get less sick? Was there less illness than not? Are there any examples or anything you can tell me more tangibly? And if not, I can get this data from you later. Yeah, I have a, a whole congressional testimony. I did this. It's like 18 pages of tons of data with the preponderance of the evidence suggesting that the school closures did not improve overall community health and particularly not, and most importantly, not for the kids, right? I mean, um, that's not a minor thing. Yeah. To shut down and change the way we educate you know, the children and what happened to them, and then in the end to learn if it's true that it didn't improve health outcomes, that's pretty stunning. Yeah, I think this had more to do with politics and power dynamics than safety and the needs of families. And if you look at the hypocrisy that just kept happening over the past couple of years with Chicago Teachers Union board member, for example, was out was caught vacationing in Puerto Rico in person, obviously, while railing against reopening the schools to go back to work in person, which raises the question, if it's safe enough to go back to go to Puerto Rico to vacation in person, why isn't it safe enough to go back to work in person? We know it's because it wasn't about safety. It's, the reality is it's more enjoyable to go to Puerto Rico to vacation in person than it is to go back to work. I don't blame the employees for that. I blame the incentives for that. In Chicago, they spend over $27,000 per student per year. Average private school tuition is only about $11,000 in Chicago, less than half of what they spend in the traditional public schools. Why not allow the families to take 
that money, even just half of it, to a, an educational provider that works best for them. That could be another public school or a private school or a charter school or even a homeschooling type of option like a homeschool co-op or a micro school or pandemic pod or even a private tutor. Will this choice for the money to follow the student have to come if it comes, district by district or at the federal level? How does that work? It, it can work at the federal level, um, but I will say the the uh, biggest improvements that we've seen have come from the state legislatures. Uh, the federal government only provides um, historically about 8 or 9% of total K-12 education expenditures. So if you want to get real choice and empowerment to parents, the best way to move the ball forward on that end is to push bills through state legislatures, and that's where we've seen the victories recently. We're actually calling 2021 the year of school choice, and I think it's because the teachers' unions overplayed their hand and awakened a sleeping giant. Parents want more of a say in their kids' education, and 19 states expanded or enacted programs to fund students as opposed to systems. And nationwide polling from Real Clear Opinion Research, for example, has found a surge in support for educational freedom a 10 percentage point jump since April of 2020, with 64% of the American public supporting school choice in April of 2020 to 74% supporting the idea of the money following the child in June of 2021. And the biggest jumps in support were among the, fam- uh, among the families who had the kids in the public school system that wasn't open. And, w- and also we saw huge jumps in support among Democrats as well, with now 70% of Democrats supporting the concept of school choice. So I think there's just been huge momentum, and I think it's because, again, the teachers' unions overplayed their hand and inadvertently done more to advance the concepts of school choice and homeschooling more than anyone could have ever imagined. Even if you disagree with it, is there a valid argument to be made that for for children to be leaving in large numbers the public school system will overall hurt the quality of education of this country and the way that, you know, we're not real happy with our education system overall, but certainly there are worse education systems and there are some very good schools. Is there a chance that this could damage the good? So I'll first start out by saying that families are already exiting the public school system, and it happens to be more advantaged families who already have school choice. The most advantaged families are at least more likely to be able to live in a neighborhood that's residentially assigned to the best quote-unquote public school. Uh, we really shouldn't call them public because Families have actually gone to jail for lying about their address to get their kids into better, quote-unquote, public schools. And and more advantaged families are at least more likely to be able to pay for private school tuition and fees out of pocket. So funding the student directly would be an equalizer. It would allow more families to access educational alternatives. And, in fact, when it comes to the kids who remain in the public schools, changes in enrollment – And this bottom-up accountability can lead to better outcomes in the public schools as well. In fact, 25 of 27 studies that exist on the topic find statistically significant positive effects of private school choice competition on the kids who remain in the public schools. It's a win-win situation, and in this sense, school choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats. And there's also a peer-reviewed meta-analysis in a journal called Educational Policy by a University of Texas at Austin researcher, Jabbar, J-A-B-B-A-R is her last name and her team, They pooled all of the studies on this topic and found a meta-analytic average, which happened to be positive. The effects of school choice competition 
improving the outcomes of the kids who don't even use the programs because the public schools start to think a little bit more about how they allocate resources. And in fact, on a similar uh, strand of research, there's five studies that I know of on the topic that I summarized at the Washington Examiner in a post called School Choice Benefits Teachers 2. All five of those studies find that either private or charter school competition leads to higher teacher salaries in the public schools at the same time. Why? Because their employers start to allocate more resources into the classroom towards the most important educational resource in the school, which happens to be the teacher. So this is a benefit for the employees, it's a benefit for the families and the students, and it's a benefit for all sectors of education. The private schools can improve and increase how many people they have enrolled, but then the public schools start to do a better job, and the students in those schools benefit as well. What is the picture you see... 10 years from now, if money is allowed to follow the student to the school where the student goes nationwide, what would our education system look like in your view? It's hard to tell what it would look like, right? That would depend on the desires of, of families and, uh, and how the market would respond to those desires. What would be a good outcome in your view? What would things look like? 100% of education dollars following the child to wherever they get an education. And I'd don't take a side on what type of school that is. It may be that there are st after families have that choice that the majority of students are still in their public schools, and that's totally fine. Um, it might be that we have more private schools into the, in the future. It might be that we even rethink the factory model of education itself and have more smaller, tight-knit communities uh, providing education. You might have more micro-schools, for example. There's an example in in Arizona, Prenda Microschools has been doing a good job where they uh, accept students using the school choice program. They have something called an education savings account program out there in Arizona, and they have these miniature schools that you don't have to ha go through all, all the huge fixed costs of, of creating these Goliath buildings um, in the traditional, as that like we have in the traditional system. So it could look a lot different in the future, again, depending on what the parents want. There's also some apps that exist now um, where you could find education providers, kind of like the Uber of education. That could be the future as well. But the thing is, I don't have a crystal ball, and it really all depends on what parents want ultimately in the future. But I think the way that, this, that we get towards this, um, uh, this future of education is to have the funding follow the child. After all, education funding is supposed to be meant for educating children, not for propping up and protecting a particular institution, whether that's public or private. Uh, we should fund the student directly as opposed to the system, just like we do with higher education with Pell Grants, just like we do with pre-K programs like the Head Start program, just like we do with food stamps. We don't tell low-income families that they must spend their food stamp dollars at a residentially assigned government-run provider of groceries, and that would be absolutely horrendous for anybody to even... Uh, ask for that. Instead, the money goes to the family, and then they could choose Walmart or Safeway if they want, but they could also choose Harris Teeter or, or, or Trader Joe's or any other provider of the service. Same thing with Medicaid dollars. You can take your Medicaid dollars to a Catholic religiously affiliated hospital if you want. Section 8 housing vouchers, it follows the, mo the money follows the decision of the family or the individual. All I'm arguing is we apply that same logic to K-12 education and fund people, not buildings. The one problem, though, is that, is that a lot of the same people who support all of these other initiatives to have the money go to people as opposed to institutions, they get all up in arms about it only when it comes to K-12 education. And why would that be? Well, the reality is the only difference is one of power dynamics, that choice is the norm with higher education, pre-K, and thankfully just about everything else in the United States. 
but choice threatens an entrenched special interest only when it comes to those in-between years of K-12 education. So, of course, they fight as hard as possible against any change to the status quo. But the reality is there is no good argument against this. The money belongs to the student and the family. It doesn't belong to the buildings. That was Corey DeAngelis, National Director of Research at the American Federation for Children, which is a school choice advocacy group. If you're interested in this topic, be sure to watch for my cover story on my Sunday TV program, Full Measure. Go to CherylAckison.com and the Full Measure tab to find TV listings and times near you. Also, there's more this week on my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, including an interview with some parents in embattled Loudoun County, Virginia, who really never thought of homeschooling until, well, you can listen and find out. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and that if so, you'll leave a good review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. You can also now support independent journalism causes by visiting CherylAxon.com and clicking the store tab. There are some thought-provoking and fun products I know you're going to love designed exclusively for independent and free thinkers like you with proceeds benefiting independent, free-thinking reporting causes. Do your own research. Make up your own mind. Think for yourself. All right, folks, all of you know the story about my crick in my neck and how I bought a MyPillow a few years ago, and all of a sudden, my neck just healed up. In fact, the orthopedist couldn't figure out what the heck had John done. I, it was simple. I just bought one of Mike Lindell's pillows, and I all of a sudden found I wasn't sleeping right on my pillow. Mike's pillows did the trick. Well, guess what? He's done it again. He's got something new. He's now introducing his new My Slippers. You want the best slipper ever, the best foot experience late at night. Well, Mike has got, he took over two years to develop this. He designed it to wear this slipper indoor and outdoor all day long. It's comfortable, it's durable. It's made with my pillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue in the slipper. And it's made with quality leather suede. They look good, they feel good, they wear good. For a limited time now, Mike is offering 50% off his new My Slippers. You will also receive a free book with any purchase. The My Slippers are so comfortable that you'll want to get some for the whole family. It's a great gift, especially heading into Springtown. So here, here's what you do. You go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's easy to remember, right? The promo code JUSTNEWS and you will get deep discounts on all the MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets the MyPillow mattress topper, and of course, the MyPillow towel set. And don't forget, y'all want those My Slippers. You gotta have them, they're incredible. Here's another way you can take advantage of this. You can call 800-951-3715 and use the promo code JUSTNEWS when someone picks up. Call 800-951-3715, use the promo code JUSTNEWS. Pretty simple stuff for the best slipper sheet pillow experience of your life. Bitcoin can be risky, but when invested in bits, exposure to Bitcoin could strengthen your overall investments. Historically, Bitcoin has tended to have a low correlation with stocks, meaning they don't always influence Bitcoin's value. When you invest with the Acorns app, you can allocate up to 5% of your portfolio in a Bitcoin-linked ETF, diversifying your investments even further. Get a bonus $10 in investments when you sign up at acorns.com slash podcast. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. Acorns does not offer a direct investment in Bitcoin. Learn more at acorns.com.